Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, January 18th, 2021. On the show today, there's been some news, plus we have listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim talks about the Epcot Person of the Century poll, which started 31 years ago today. Let's get started by bringing in the man who points out that because Big Bird has front-facing eyes, he's the apex predator on Sesame Street. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I got to interview Carol Spinney once, the gentleman who played Big Bird. He grew up one town over from where I lived in Maynard, Massachusetts. So I met him at New York Comic Con. <laughs> have, you, have you guys checked the water supply? That's all I'm saying. It's worth commenting on that. But <laughs> he actually talked about how the very first season of Sesame Street, they actually had to change the placement of Big Bird's eyes because he had the standard Muppety eyes at the point that sort of the half lid. The problem mm-hmm. was, you know, just everyone was looking at it. And again, it's, remember, it's 1969. It's like, is Big Bird stoned? Exactly. <laughs> In season two, they actually gave him a rig inside of the head where he could actually open Big Bird's eyes. And they did address the issue. So you're right, forward-facing eyes, but the lids could lift. So, you know, it didn't particularly look like, you know, he was looking to score. (laughs) This episode's brought to you by the numbers four and 20, man. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Moving on now. All right, Jim, let's do a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where we've got a ton of new episodes, including a never before seen script for Spaceship Earth coming up. So thanks to new subscribers EMT Robert 19, C Trawick, and Ycats08, and longtime subscribers Great Ben, A Bravo85, and VA Beach Diz Mom Jim. These are the folks coming up with flavor ideas for the gelato place coming to Epcot's Italy Pavilion. And those flavors include Sfumato, which is a swirl of dark chocolate and vanilla, Dante's Eighth Circle of Hell, which as you know is fraud, <laughs> so you order pistachio and you get banana. <laughs> And something called Milan Train Station. True story. There's a little bit in there for everyone. Dante's Eighth Circle of Hell. It's fraud. So you get, I, I, no, you get I, I love that. I do. I'm, I'm a little concerned about Milan train station. Have they specified, you know, like floor of Milan train station? Because otherwise, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not willing to try that. I actually have a story about the Milan train station. So Laurel and I were flying out of Milan one time. And Milan has the steepest, tallest escalator I've ever seen in my life. It's got to go like five stories up and it's like at a 45 degree angle. And on this particular day, the elevator had decided to take the day off. So we had luggage and it was stairs. And that's my big memory of the Milan train station. I think Dante's eighth circle of hell suddenly. (laughs) Suddenly it's competition. (laughs) There we go. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, a couple of uh, housekeeping things we got to get through. It looks like Remy's Ratatouille Adventure should open any day now in Epcot. So the uh, walls are down. Yeah, I was told the hedges have rolled into place. Yeah, and there's just some minor painting that has to be done on the backside. Mm. But there's supposed to be a media event happening. If it already hasn't happened, it any day now, so soon, very okay. soon, which is good. Right. Good, good. Also, Sorcerer's the Magic Kingdom is rumored to close any day now? Not rumored. We have an actual date, the 24th of January. Oh, you heard this from uh, from Disney? Yeah. Okay. It's basically the equivalent of like a, a mid-level ride in terms of people per hour that it can handle. At a time when the parks are at 35% capacity, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I can get behind that, especially since... I had heard last year out ahead of the 50th anniversary that there was a special 50th anniversary edition of Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, a game being prepped to replace it that would use the same physical plant. What's troubling me is there's been no mention at all of that. This is just about shutting that down. So it's some sort of maintenance thing? Like they don't think it's worth it? That's what's genuinely troubling a lot of folks about this, that Normally in a situation like this, when, say, the Kim Possible thing got shut down at Epcot and Mm -hmm. then we heard about Phineas and Ferb and when Phineas Ferb went down, you know, we heard about the, 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 the the coming. this actually, since it's been up and running since uh, 2012, 
regularly supported with new cards. I mean, there's a number of people who actually were buying tickets to the Mickey's Not So Scary and the Mickey's Very Merry just to get the card that would debut at those events. And so right. it's it's kind of a strange call. And again, the fact that the other shoe hasn't dropped about supposedly a, a 50th anniversary tied redo and makes you just wonder, okay, so is that still in the works? I don't know. It's very strange. Like my thinking here, it's got to be some sort of maintenance thing because there's it, it's got to be cost related. It's either the, the number of cast mm. members that are required to hand out the cards at the barn or the maintenance or something like that. Because other than those two things... Mm. Like, what's the cost in keeping this thing running? Right. The, you've probably got millions of cards already printed. Well, no, that's it exactly. In fact, just the strange thing to sort of pull the plug on on this sort of effort without the follow-up project being announced. Speaking of things that, uh, whose plugger is being pulled without a follow-up, we're going to get to that in a mm-hmm. second. But I do want to point out also, the Contemporary Resort, this hasn't been announced, by the way, but the uh, Contemporary Resort is closing April through September. Mm-hmm. Just the tower rooms, I guess you're going to be moved to Bay Lake Tower or to another deluxe. Mm-hmm. If I'm you and you're move and you need to be moved, I'm saying Grand Floridian rather than any other deluxe because what you want is a swap for uh, of walking distance to the Magic Kingdom for another walking distance to the Magic Kingdom, and so the only other resort that qualifies mm-hmm. besides Bay Lake Tower for that is Grand Floridian. So if that uh, that affects any of our listeners, let, let us know what you get. Okay, so Please. is this another soft goods changeout? I'm told it's a it's a combination of things. It's basic plumbing stuff that needs to be okay. fixed mm-hmm. and things like that, and then the soft goods and stuff like that. So, well, won't it be exciting then to stand outside of this building and watch all those drawers to be pulled out since 1971? <laughs> okay, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm assuming U.S. Steel is is involved in this somehow, right? Finally, we're going to get to watch this. Oh boy! I cannot wait for this. All right, so Jim, speaking of uh, things that have ended without a replacement, Disney announced this week. Magical Express ending on December 31st, 2021. And so not only was this a a surprise to us, apparently it was a surprise to Mears as well. Mears Transportation actually runs uh, Magical Express. Yeah. That to me is the story. The fact that this got announced and they kind of blindsided them. Yeah. And we've already talked about the train, but that's years away. The bright light. Yeah. So the bright light, to the day after this, uh, I guess the media started asking Brightline, mm-hmm. when is this thing going to be ready? And now the answer is uh, 2023. Yeah. But even mm-hmm. then, the Brightline train going from Orlando International Airport to Disney Springs mm-hmm. probably isn't going to be an option for a number of reasons. Number one, you still have to go from Disney Springs to your hotel. Mm-hmm. And unless Disney's going to run that bus service from Springs mm-hmm. to their hotels, why not just get a, a, a an Uber yeah. or a Lyft and just go directly from the airport to your hotel? Why make the stop at Disney Springs, mm-hmm. right? Why do that? The second thing is you're normally not allowed luggage on Disney buses, mm-hmm. so you can't take the regular Disney Spring buses. Are you hearing the same things I'm hearing about austerity? Yeah, that, that's what I think this mm-hmm. is. So my sense is that, and I could be wrong on this, Disney guaranteed mirrors a certain amount of volume during the contract, right? We will We guarantee you... X number of passengers, which equates to X number of dollars mm-hmm. per month or per year, whatever, during the contract. And they're simply not hitting it because we talked on the previous show what the hotel occupancy rates mm-hmm. are. Right now, I went back and looked at our survey results because we've got you know hundreds of thousands of surveys from unofficial guide readers and, and, and people mm-hmm. like that um, and touring plans um, users. And around 40% of our people use uh, Magical Express. A lot of people don't, right? Because if you're driving... Oh, sure. From Florida, you already have a car. Mm. If you're driving from Georgia, you already have a mm. car, right? So I think the number's uh, somewhere around 40%. Mm. So you figure 40% of the eligible pool is using Magical Express, but the hotels are half full at best. So you know, you're looking at maybe one out of every five people. Mm. And my guess is that's below the that's a below the line number mm. for Disney, that they're simply not making any, any money. The other th- my other thought on this was was mm. this. You know, Disney originally came up with Magical Express to keep people on site, mm-hmm. right? The idea being that not many people are going to call a cab, wait for a mm-hmm. cab, get in the cab, and go to Universal Orlando or to you know downtown Orlando or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But now that you can call an Uber or a Lyft using your app and you don't have to wait, basically you do it on your walk from your resort to mm-hmm. the to the pickup point so that they're there when you're there, and it's also cheaper than a mm-hmm. cab. And you have things like ratings where you can, you know, you know who you're getting and you know the kind of car you're getting and stuff like that, that it's easier for people to get off site mm-hmm. now. My thinking is that Disney was thinking, 
all we're doing now is subsidizing the round trip between the, the airport and the hotel for these people. We're not getting as much of a benefit as we thought. Yes, in the, the age of Uber, the notion of Walt Disney World is a walled city. As far, and, and let's be honest here. You know, if you think about, for example, we already saw the bypass project uh, built next to the Tickets to Transportation Center. We have bypass number two coming now to make it that much easier to get back and forth to like the flow and that sort of thing. It's counterintuitive to be as heavily invested in the whole D Disney Magical Express when you're making it that much easier for people to get around property and more to the point to get off property. Right. So I think they're looking at a, a rideshare future. Mm. I don't think it's gonna, this is going to result, though, in more rental car business no. in Florida. No. And the obvious reason there is because Disney is now charging for parking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I do think it's possible for Disney to bring back a paid version of Magical Express, where instead of subsidizing the entire cost, they subsidize only some of the cost. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, for, and I'm making up a number here, you know, $50 each way for your family. Would you go, would you do Magical Express? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the reason we think this, we got a number of listener emails about this particular topic, but, uh, but one of them, Austin, mm -hmm. sent us a survey he got last week. And in that survey during his, from his stay at uh, Onsite, there were, I would say probably the first quarter of the survey was entirely around transportation methods that he used to get around Walt Disney World. So they're still super interested in this. Okay. Well, if the pandemic hadn't, hadn't happened and the 50th anniversary had gone forward as originally planned, you'd have the resort at full capacity. You would need this. You'd yeah. need this transportation system. And now it's been especially fascinating just in the past week to watch the number of blockbuster films that had already moved out of 2020 into 2021 the new bond you know no time to die is supposed to move out of its spring slot into the fall because there's still concern about you know okay yes we have a vaccine but is it going to be readily available it's what i've heard i, I talked to a bunch of people yesterday about exactly this mm -hmm. topic and the consensus opinion seems to be is that we've we've lost a month Oof, somehow okay. in distribution mm -hmm. but the once the J and J uh, and vaccine comes on, we'll have adequate supply. The AZ and the J and J okay. uh, vaccines. Once they come mm -hmm. on, uh, then the problem will be we don't have enough people to actually administer it. Like, can we train people who once watched Marcus Welby MD mm -hmm. and who apparently have some medical training to administer shots? That's that's the big the big thing. So we'll see. While we're talking about this issue, we touch on the fact that out in California. At Disneyland in the Toy Story lot, they're now using that as a vaccine site. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it should have used uh, it's tough to be a bug with the, uh, with the Scorpion <laughs> features, but one thing at a time. Supposedly, they are looking at Walt Disney World as well. And have you heard where they're considering doing this? No, where? Supposedly, they're looking at ESPN Wide World of Sports. Oh, yeah. Fantastic idea. I mean, they handle crowds like that for the marathons. All that's the time. it, exactly. Tons of parking. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Close to the highways. You don't have to go deep into property. Exactly. The, inter the interchange is already set up. That's a great idea. I think that's supposed to be announced in the coming week or thereabouts. So. Oh, that's fantastic. All right. Good to know. Other big news this week, Jim. Extra magic hours are officially ended. Yeah. And it is replaced now with 30 minutes of exclusive time for resort guests in each park each day. Jim, <laughs> I'm calling this extra magic minutes. <laughs> You wonder why we don't get invited to media events, and it's it's stuff like this. It's exactly I have like resigned myself. <laughs> yeah, well, you knew you knew when we partnered up that your days were numbered, Tim. That's it. That's right. All right. I guess in the thirty five percent world, this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, they're basically it's what the parks are doing now anyway. Magic Kingdom's opening thirty to fifty minutes in advance. Mm -hmm. Studios is opening. Mm -hmm. 30 to 50 minutes in advance. This basically formalizes mm -hmm. it, which is nice. That's good. So we can always count on that. Um, there's no word yet on which rides will be open and which mm -hmm. parks. So I know, for example, if you show up at the Magic Kingdom 45 minutes before mm -hmm. opening, the park is opening. When the park is open, it could be as few rides as just Seven Doors Mine Train. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll, have to, um, we'll have to figure out what's actually going to be open. But I think the thing that isn't being talked about yet on it, we're going to do a, a blog post mm -hmm. on it, but... This is going to be a huge disadvantage for offsite guests, especially as new rides open. Because you think about it now, mm -hmm. right? If you're an offsite guest, but you know the extra magic hour schedule, mm -hmm. you can work around it, right? So if you, let's say, you know, Remy opens at Epcot, mm -hmm. right? 
and Tuesday is an uh, or Monday is a uh, an extra magic hour morning at Epcot. Well, you don't go on Monday; you go on Tuesday mm-hmm. when you can line up with everybody else, and there's no one in the park ahead of you. But now, now you're automatically thirty minutes, which is thousands of people mm-hmm. behind them in the line whenever a new ride opens, and there's no way around it. It's a huge disadvantage for offsite guests right now. That's one way to drive hotel occupancy right oh, there. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Though so I'm going to be intrigued to hear what you and the unofficial guide team have to say after you start collecting data. So we've, we've already estimated. <laughs> we, okay. we, we think the 30-minute head start mm-hmm. for on-site guests means that no matter what you do, even if you have a perfect touring plan, mm-hmm. Offsite guests will wait an hour more in line over the course of a day at the Magic Kingdom than onsite guests. So that's the thing that you got to be thinking about. Like, let's say a value resort is, you know, Disney value resorts like twenty dollars mm. more or twenty five dollars more, you know, per night. Okay. Would you wait an hour in line for twenty five dollars? Would you make your family wait in line <sighs> an hour a day extra for twenty five dollars? I, you know, I think the answer for that is no. No, no you're right. You're right. Disease counting on the word about that getting out. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll we'll explain it. I mean, it's you know you can you can talk about the trade off between time and money pretty pretty clearly mm-hmm. there. So. Absolutely. Uh, last bit of uh, news. So the second harmonious barge, Jim, has mm-hmm. uh, been placed in World Showcase Lagoon. And let me just say, Jim, that I was wrong. <laughs> I did not think anything in Epcot could ever be as unattractive and as un- unsightly as the Leva Legacy monoliths. In future world. But now that I've seen two of these barges, I was wrong, Jim. This is basically the Leva Legacy equivalent floating in, in World Checkers Lagoon. They are large and they are unsightly. And remember, we still have three to be placed. Is there going to be any water left? Like, could you actually walk across the barges from one end of World Checkers Lagoon? They've got arms. It's not entirely impossible here. This is going to have to be one hell of a soundtrack. That's all I'm saying. I mean, Talking just, with friends at entertainment, as soon as you start to talk about this issue, they're like, wait. When the water feature gets turned on, let us get them all locked into place and let us turn the water feature on during the day. And they will become somewhat invisible when the water feature is on. And then at night, when we're presenting the show, people will ooh and ah. It's like if you went to go see Wicked on Broadway and they were still hanging the lighting rigs. It's like, where is Oz? Come back in three weeks when we finish putting up the entire set. This is just us putting the tech in place. It will look amazing. When it's in place during the day when they turn the water feature on, it will look amazing at night when they're pre- actually presenting the show. But they know right now it's it's pretty unsightly. But what are you going to do? In the end, these aren't things you could trundle out every day at five and then put in place. It was like, okay, you know, with a show this size and we committed a tech of of this sort that we can't really move we got to bring these things out, yeah. lock them down, and do after our, lots of after-hours rehearsals. So it is what it is. But just at least with Leg- a legacy, you could look for, for you know really bad pictures of family members. This, on the other hand, is just sort of like, I know the American <laughs> Pavilion is over there somewhere. That's the thing. Because there are, some of them are in the foreground, they appear larger than the pavilions which are in the background. Mm. So the scale is... I think is is the most problematic thing. The other thing is, I mean, they're black. So again, it looks like, you know, a hulking star cruiser (laughs) floating on the water or whatever. Anyway. Okay. All right. Uh, On to listener questions. First one is from uh, Jim in Ohio, who says, Len, it is pronounced Medina, not Medina. Thank you, Jim. I knew that as soon as I said Uh, it. And then I didn't go back and correct it. That's my bad. And then we have a listener question from Chris, who says this. I was very interested to hear that you both are confident that Zootopia is coming to Animal Kingdom. I remember a tweet from Joe Rohde where he pretty clearly rejected the idea that Zootopia fits in Animal Kingdom. He argues that Zootopia uses animals to address human issues, while the intent of Animal Kingdom is to address animal issues on their own. So he has a famous no pants Mm -hmm. quote. Did the green light for Zootopia come after Joe's retirement announcement, or did he lose the battle on this one or maybe change his mind? Did you see where, as Joe was leaving the Disney company, he tweeted out an image of a set of boots that list 
boots with uh, Epcot uh, phase yeah, two. Yeah, well, uh, more to the point, Animal Kingdom was uh, phase two. Oh, sorry, I, I said Epcot. I, in, in my head, I, I, I was thinking Animal Kingdom, yeah. Okay, but it listed every project that he had worked on, uh, every project of size that he had worked on, you know, Alani, right. Avatar, and the very last one at the bottom was Animal Kingdom Expansion 2. Sadly, Joe's take on Animal Kingdom, you got to remember, we, we have a brand new boss uh, at the Walt Disney Companies these days, Bob Chapek. And Bob Chapek is, you know, a creature who came out of the consumer products end of the company. In fact, he was mm -hmm. the one in place when consumer products and the parks all got melded together into that brand new department, what Disney parks experiences and products. And to Bob's way of thinking, we are spending a lot of money to build a Zootopia land in Shanghai. And, you know, there are numerous projects at Walt Disney Animation Studios that will be supporting the expansion of the Zootopia franchise. And we have a, a character deficit Animal Kingdom, and that's the way we're going. So any Imagineer will tell you that the number of projects you win on versus the number of projects you lose on, management in the end always wins out. And sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes you get to ram something through that reflects your values and your taste and the public also. It's extremely rare. Yeah, uh, but Joe got yeah. a lot of that with Animal Kingdom, and it just, but at the same time, it's probably not a coincidence that Joe decided, okay, this is maybe time to pack it in, that the new boss and I don't necessarily agree, and so you and I have been talking about the plans for Conservation Station for years, and this isn't immediate, yet, especially with that $900 million worth of capitalization that they've tapped the brakes on, but yeah, yep. by the end of this decade, though, you're going to get to spend some time with, with Nick and Judy when you go to the Animal Kingdom, and we'll, we'll just leave it at that, okay? Fair enough, fair enough. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and I talk about the Epcot Man of the Century poll, which launched 31 years ago. Today, we'll be right back. All right, Jim, before we talk about the Epcot Man of the Century mm -hmm. poll, we also have another thing that happened low these many years ago that I want to bring up. And it's actually a, it's a listener's trip with his family. Uh, so we got an email from Trevor a while back. who said, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your episode analyzing vintage Disneyland photos. Thanks for bringing Disney history to life. It reminded me of some vintage Walt Disney World photos I found in my grandparents' basement. I believe they're from the first Christmas ever in Walt Disney World. He wasn't sure, but I'm sure Eagle Eye Len will be able to pin down the exact month, date, and time of each photo. And he sent in the photos, and they are uh, sort of square Polaroids. Mm. And I want to talk about these, Jim, for a number of reasons. One is they are from the first Walt Disney World Christmas, 1971. Ooh, yes, um, they are. But the thing that I love about them is the contrast in what Disney World looked like then and what we know of now. So we'll, we're going to put these photos in the show notes, folks. You should scroll along. As we go through these, the first one I want to highlight are Trevor's grandparents. So his grandfather is standing, it looks like in front of Fantasyland, right where the old Skyway used to be. Yeah, yeah. I would say he's probably in the, you know, how you had to climb a set of stairs to actually get to the Skyway station. Yeah, this is where the, the tangled bathrooms are. He's basically right there right mm -hmm. now with a really nice tree next mm -hmm. to him wearing uh, what can uh, only be described as the most comfortable pair of pants <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> God, that looks good. And I love the color on it. <laughs> okay. And then we have one of his, I guess, grandmother in Adventureland. And it took me a while, Jim, to figure out where his, Trevor's grandmother is on this. She's wearing a bright red shirt. She looks mm -hmm. great. She's standing in front of the exit to Swiss Family Treehouse. That's it. Okay. So the, in, in the background of this photo are the shops in Adventureland, sort of that if you're walking towards where Magic Carpets of Aladdin are now, the shops that would be on your mm -hmm. right but here they're painted a stark white, like like the buildings in the movie Casablanca. Yeah, yeah. And they're much more closed, and there are no awnings above them. Not only that, but there's no second floor oh. on them, so you can see the backside of the Frontierland buildings. Yeah, you know, I, again, that this is January '72, so I mean, in fact, yeah, this view does not exist no, anymore. It does not. So. Fantastic mm. photo, though. The third one I want to bring your attention to, Jim, is it looks like they, uh, Trevor's grandparents took the photo from the Skyway mm. 
as it left Fantasyland because the shot here is of the walkway between sort of the exit of um, Peter Pan and going towards Haunted Mansion. And the remarkable thing about this gym is look at the line of people who wanted to ride the Skyway. The line extends from the Skyway, basically where the tangled restrooms are Mm -hmm. right now, all the way back towards Haunted Mansion. Holy cow, look at that. That's an amazing number of people Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to ride buckets in the sky. (laughs) You got to remember, again, this is the park has first opened and and park's only been open. So the January 72, what, uh, four months now, if that? October to November, November, December. It, it, I think this is December, actually. I'm, I'm, I, I did manage to pin down the week. Okay. I think mm-hmm. um, through that this happened. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. And then the time of day, of course. That was easy. But yeah, so this is definitely December. But at the same time, if you're somebody who's lucky enough to go down to Walt Disney World, which the whole world has been talking about for five years since the project yeah. got announced, you want to do the Skyway just so you can get the pictures to take home and have bragging rights. It's like, in fact, that's that's what I love about this particular image. But with the shot, you don't just see Fantasyland. You see, you can see Frontierland. In fact, the, the, and the trees have rivers of America. Yeah, the, there's no. There's, it's basically swampland. The, yeah. the foliage hasn't grown in. You can see the Enchanted Tiki Room. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, pagoda-like structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see a lot of stuff here. Yeah. And the, the, also, the, the thing you can see is the lack of things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the photo. We're going to talk about that. So, Because the next photo mm-hmm. is, I guess, the Trevor's grandparents took as they arrived at the Tomorrowland Skyway <laughs> Station. And they took a picture of approaching the station with the contemporary in the background. And you know the contemporary is there because, Jim, there is not a single tree (laughs) between the Tomorrowland Station and the contemporary. There is nothing there but swampland and some construction trucks in the background. Oh, yeah. And what's interesting is you look at in the middle foreground, you can see the train tracks, but you can also see the challenges they faced when they were creating Seven Seas Lagoon, when they were hauling all of that sand out and mounding it up to make effectively the second floor of the magic kingdom yeah that stuff did not handle grass all that well no you can see it's it basically looks like a giant sandbox between tomorrowland and the train tracks and then beyond that i don't know what they had to do to get that grass to grow that i'm I'm guessing that's glue it's basically glued on at that point i remember talking with somebody who worked at the tree farm and they just talked about how they would just go all over Florida harvesting whatever loam they could get and bring it back to property yeah. and throw it down. But it took years yeah. to get the green lush look that they wanted. Oh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. There's a there there's no backside infrastructure mm-hmm. on this. It's we've got Tomorrowland, we've got a vast expanse of sand, mm-hmm. we've got a lake. We've got vast expanse of grass. We've got the contemporary. There's nothing between the two. It's amazing. But again, you remember, you know, one of the design conceits, at least early on, was the contemporary resort was supposed to back up the story that Tomorrowland was telling. Right. And in fact, this was early enough in Disney's history that supposedly, you know, there were points inside, you know, as you were walking through Adventureland where you could see through out to Seven Seas Lagoon and see looming way off in the distance, the Polly, which was supposed to back up oh, really? that story. But but again, you know, a lot of that stuff fell by the wayside 72, 73, 74 as things grew up and suddenly these views went away. Speaking of, uh, of views that have gone away, apparently uh, Trevor's grandparents took a photo of the Tomorrowland Speedway <laughs> from the buckets. And it's an amazing photo for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. One, there's no Toontown or anything in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, this is the original version of the Speedway track, and it is much, much larger than it was now. The other thing is, Jim, again, not a shade tree in sight. No, <laughs> it's no. the entire thing. It's like it's, you might as well be driving through the Florida Panhandle in your little, you know, three horsepower fiberglass cars because this is what it looks like. Cow, it's uh, it just... it's beautiful, but the cars are vibrant. They're colorful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everyone's having fun. I mean. Yeah. Do you see the one uh, middle? You get a tricolor version, you know, paint job. Yeah. It's like an ombre uh, red fading to uh, white and blue. Oh, and and there's a red one literally coming into the bottom of the image that has flames on it. So it's like, wow. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. The uh, the original uh, color schemes looked really good. But man, the track was larger. Again, not a shade tree in sight of the whole thing. Just fantastic. Just beautiful. The, uh, there's another photo of, again, along the Skyway where it's 
the view straight down fantasy land, I guess looking, this is from the takeoff of the, the launch point of the Skyway going towards what would eventually be, you know, Peter Pan's flight and stuff like that. But to me, Jim, the, the big thing here is look how different Fantasyland looks. Yeah, really kind of body to body. It was December, yeah. So. Yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of a muted color palette. I mean, I know you did some restoration on these photos, but, you yeah. know, and obviously, you know, you have a very colorful set of sky buckets, but that's right. really kind of intriguing that the color palette for Fantasyland is that muted. It's a, brown, a lot of brown and white. So I think this photo is taken approximately where the carousel is right now, looking back towards the Skyliner launch. The thing that we're looking at in the middle is what is now Pinocchio Village House mm. and Peter Pan's flight. But it doesn't look anything like that now. In fact, I don't think, is Pinocchio Village House the three-story thing that it, it shows here? As Fantasyland has grown up, taller things have made that stick out less that, than it does. But this serves a number of purposes. This this helps hide the giant small world building that they have to mask. So it's still there, but there, there's there been a ton of work done mm -hmm. on the roof line. And also the color scheme is completely different. I'm not surprised. So like the, uh, the part of the building that juts out of mm -hmm. Pinocchio Village House, where the corner is, that's completely redone. Okay. Wow, great photos, though. No, absolutely. And then the uh, there's two more or three more I want to go over. Mm -hmm. One is a view approximately at where the launch for Tom Sawyer Island rafts would be, mm -hmm. looking over towards Haunted Mansion. And the thing that's a couple of remarkable things about this one is Tom Sawyer Island doesn't exist yet. It's completely un untouched. Mm -hmm. It is just grass and trees. But number two. It's a direct line of sight over the water to the Haunted Mansion. There are no trees. There's no awnings. Mm -hmm. There's no nothing. It is just the Haunted Mansion. And we've got the Liberty Bell Riverboat sort of in the middle distance with a great shot of that as well. Mm -hmm. You can tell how early this photo was taken because if you look between the Liberty Bell and to the right of the Haunted Mansion, it's one of the few times you can actually see the building that the attraction is oh. housed in. Oh, okay. I didn't know whether that was Fantasyland or that was Haunted Mansion. But no, no you can. And now you can't see that today. That's all. That's all completely hidden. No, and can't. You know, I know you did a restoration job on this thing, but I can't tell. Is that supposed to be look away gray or go away green? <laughs> I don't know that the, those colors existed. But you notice in the upper right hand corner mm -hmm. of this photo, Disney designated this as a photo spot. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> be, uh, well, okay. Get okay, it. fair enough. Yeah. The uh, the other image again. It's a, another one along the Skyliner, and it's taken uh, in Fantasyland. But it's a uh, it's a photo of. I'm assuming Jim. This is the what is it we know now is the Prince Charming Regal Carousel. There you go. Yeah. In the middle of Fantasyland, but it's got a huge tent awning on it mm -hmm. that no longer exists. If you look to the right of that, Jim. I guess going towards the castle, mm -hmm. those buildings don't look anything like that anymore. And in the distance, you can see the contemporary again. But number one, the uh, the the Magic Kingdom doesn't look like this physically; it doesn't look like this anymore. But number two, the buildings are completely different. Mm -hmm. The last one that I wanted to talk about was taken, I guess, in the uh, Swiss Family Treehouse, and it's a view of across Adventureland, looking at Cinderella Castle. Oh. This is kind of consistent. So that mm -hmm. second story balcony still exists there. Mm -hmm. This is um, sort of over where, I guess it's a Club 33 now mm -hmm. um, building. It's sort of that area yep. up on top, but with a different um, porch, second story porch, and then Cinderella Castle in the distance. But the interesting thing is, I think now between those two points, there's a ton of trees yeah. like, that have grown up. And you can't see mm -hmm. from that second floor. You can't see the castle in full. Yeah. In fact, it's so funny because I've come into... This amazing collection of Disneyland lines. And what's especially interesting when they talk of when they got the Swiss Family Treehouse up and running in 62 and, and the Bruce Gordons of the, the world, they, you know, before he was an Imagineer, just a boy who'd go to Disneyland, they'd love mm -hmm. getting up into that tree because they had unprecedented views to look down into the the uh, New Orleans Square construction site and you yeah. know, get, check out everything else that was being built around the parks. And, but it was the same thing, you know, two years later, you know, all the bamboo and everything had grown up and suddenly no view. No view. Yeah. 
Yes, that's why one of the reasons why I love these photos. Number one is it's it's not only a, a look at what the park looked like, but mm -hmm. the views that we we can't even see now, even if we wanted to, even if everything else was exactly the same, mm -hmm. the landscape would be different. All right, so a couple more photos here. There's one straight down Main Street, looking at the train station, and the interesting thing here is uh, there are trees lining uh, either side of Main Street, yeah. which we don't have now. Yep, yep, yep. Also notice people in shorts mm -hmm. in December. <laughs> I think I'm about five weeks away from becoming the guy in the center of the photo with the suspenders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the last photo is a, uh, is a view of uh, City Hall. Uh, and I, I point this out for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. One is uh, Trevor asked us to date the photos. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a clock here mm -hmm. and it's 3.34 p.m. So that's the time the photo was taken. Mm -hmm. Also more people in shorts. Mm -hmm. So I did, some, uh, I did some research on weather in Florida mm -hmm. in December 1971. So it turns out the south, the entire south of the United States was experiencing a heat wave. Mm -hmm. The second week of December, it was uh, anywhere from uh, mid-70s to the low 80s during the day. It was several degrees warmer than normal. In Florida, so that explains the people wearing shorts at Christmas. So that's where I think this was. I think this was somewhere around the second week of December in in Florida. And I was going to make a joke that I knew that the time was uh, three thirty four p.m. based on the angle of the sun <laughs> that day in Orlando. But it turns out, yeah, there's a clock in some of the photos. <laughs> anyway, but it's worth noting that clearly they weren't working with the biggest holiday decoration budget. No, this is. A, does anyone have any garland from the garage? <laughs> You can string. Yes, yes. I mean, there's a wreath. Yep. There's some garland strewn, and that's mm -hmm. that's it. Because if you look at the previous photo of down Main Street towards the train station, there's not a single Christmas decoration to be seen. If you want more information about particularly this era of the parks, there's a, a wonderful new book that Disney Editions put out, I want to say in October of last year. It's Disney Holiday Magic at the Parks. It's uh, Graham Allen Page, Becky Klein, and... And Charles Price. It's 386 pages, but it has amazing photos from all of the parks from every era. Really? Yeah, but they do address this, the fact that, you know, they were just lucky to get Disney, like, to, or Disney World's Magic Kingdom open on time. And then I was yeah. oh, yeah, the holidays, sure. <laughs> you know, and it's Florida. There's lots of pine trees. Let's, let's, let, you know, get the, garland? What is this word, garland? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so great photos, mm -hmm. uh, Trevor. Thank you for sending them in. They're fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right, Jim, let's talk about uh, Epcot's Person of the Century poll, which debuted yep. 31 years ago this week. It, it did, it did. And in fact, there's a clip from the 1989 Walt Disney World Very Merry Christmas Parade broadcast. It was on ABC that year. And here's Michael Eisner announcing what they he considered you know one of the biggest endeavors the Walt Disney Company had ever attempted the idea was that they were going to do this decade long poll it's important to stress here because whenever we previously talked about this we, we we've stressed that you know it was in Communicore East it was part of the electronic forum prior to this there were a lot of companies that actually turned to Disney once they knew they had this instant feedback poll yeah. and looked at them for information. Like, for example, I, I came across the story in the Sentinel where the U.S. Treasury is confused. Every year, $4 billion worth of pennies go out of circulation. And it's just sort of like... Where are these things going? There, there, there aren't that many couches in the United States. Where is this money going? Yeah. And so they actually asked Walt Disney World, as part of their electronic forum, could you ask your guests, well, you know, where are these pennies? And even the way it was set up, and I don't know, Len, if you were ever remember going there to communicories to the, the electronic forum, it was kind of a strange setup. You had to sort of go into this space that had a theater with 170 seats. Yeah, it was you went you went in the building and then it was like a um, uh, like a sunken living room there area we go. you had to go in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there was the equivalent of a remote control and you would put in your information about the poll or the questions that were being asked and then they would show you what the group that was in the room had just voted on and how that compared to the data they'd already grabbed. But Disney on average was getting 3000 people a week in through this space. And in comparison to what Gallup 
and Harris Poll was doing during this time where, you know, they do a telephone survey and they'd be lucky if they could get 800 to 1200 people to respond to the survey. So the notion was Disney can get a far bigger sample with its electronic forum. And Eisner saw this as like, wow, do you understand what this is? We, We can turn this into a tool that gets us on the nightly news every night, you know, to the effect of, you know, here's our survey question and folks at Walt Disney World said this. And well, this is one of the things that I think that they should they should do mm-hmm. with or should have done with interventions, right? Make it make it more instantaneous and pitch it as a tool for companies to get feedback from users on potential products. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, Eisner definitely wanted to head down this road. In fact, for a brief period of time, he actually persuaded 60 Minutes to do this. There's at least one or two, a few minutes with, with Andy Rooney columns that start off with, this question was asked to the folks at Epcot. And, and then he would use the survey results to sort of spin into whatever he was griping about that week. But TV Guide used it to track what people's favorite shows were and then give the feedback mm-hmm. to the networks. Ladies Home Journal was using it to ask questions about the changing American family. So I sort of was like, we need to turn this into a tool for us. And we need, in order to pushes out there. We need something big. And so he that they then came up with this person of the century poll idea. And to sort of double it back to the, the footage I was talking about from the 1989 Very Merry Christmas at Walt Disney World, Eisner announces that on January 14th, uh, 1990, they're going to open this brand new polling place and that Disney has partnered with 2,500 universities around the world Wow. To put together a list of 89 candidates for the possible determining the person of the century. Now, mind you, they were breaking them down over various different disciplines, eight different categories. There was government and military, there was science and medicine, education, business, sports, entertainment, literature, and the arts. When they they reached out to the 2,500 universities and and wanted to get a a base list to start with, uh, they actually got a pushback from a number of the Christian colleges and that sort of thing. It's like, why don't you have spiritual leaders? And Disney was like, oh, you're right. That's a mistake. And that, that then opened the door to bringing in people like Mother Teresa. They select 89 candidates. That's the list that they launch with. But the idea is that in-house at Disney, because they anticipate that this will be, frankly, dynamic, that new candidates will emerge each year. What Disney wanted to be able to do was announce every year, oh, by the way, we've added this number of people to the list, you know, due to what's happened over the past year, with the thinking that by the time this survey ends, and in fact, they, they had already announced the end date, that the last of the votes was going to be taken on December 15th, 1999. And then Eisner, as again, as part of this, this 1988 announcement in the Merry Merry Christmas broadcast, said that on January 1st at 12 noon in Epcot Center, I will have the honor of announcing the person of the century. So he was he was so heavily invested in this thing, and he but he also okay. he also stressed that you know we're periodically going to be bringing you updates. We're going to let you know how the voting is going initially. Gandhi's in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to announce it like that. But at the same time, they were also going to be pushing out the results. You know, making folks away through magazines, through on radio and television, and, and your local newspapers. So, mid May of 1990, they announced that these are the the top candidates at that time. So we had the Beatles, Winston Churchill, Walt Disney. Thomas Alva Edison, uh, Albert Einstein, uh, Henry Ford, Mikhail Gorbachev, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thomas Dewey. <laughs> like, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think of how uh, Mr. Burns from The Simpsons would, would name some of these people. <laughs> well, Thomas Dewey. You laugh, but Thomas Dewey was actually on the list. Was he really in the original '89? Uh, now, oh. mind you, Jonas Salk is on the list, but at the same time, Adolf Hitler is on the list. My Say Tongue is on the list. Now, this became problematic right off the bat, in that it was a touchscreen system. And what would happen was, you know, you would walk into the, uh, in Epcot, to the the person of the century polling station, Mm -hmm. and a lot of folks weren't necessarily tech savvy, so they'd call it up, and there'd be five names in front of them. 
And so, and they thought that was it. They thought that was it. They wouldn't scroll through the other eighty nine. So, and if you think about it, it you, if you factor in alphabetical order, Walt Disney is fairly high up in the ABCs. And yeah. so early on, you know, suddenly, you know, Disney's looking at the early results and it's like, wow, Walt is doing. You know, the Walt Disney Company thinks Walt Disney was the man of the 21st century. Yeah. yeah now, it, it, or announces. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that that's. Yeah. You know, and. Not, not going to be as newsworthy as you might think. Okay. So, you know, that they immediately, all right, we probably need to address the setup on the machines. But at the same time, they are also rolling out additional machines, Lynn. I mean, we've always talked about how. This was something that, again, was in Communicore East in the electronic forum, but it turns out by mid-1990, if you went to Disneyland and you were exiting the Circle Vision show in Tomorrowland, there in the post-show area, there were two back-to-back sets of machines where you could vote really? for Person of the Century. Yeah. And in fact, in the Walt Disney World annual pass holder quarterly, the December 1991 issue... They also talked about, hey, you know, we've got the Epcot machines, we've got the ones at Disneyland, and we are opening Euro Disney in Paris in April of next year, and we've already selected spots for the person of the century polls to go there, and Japan has already indicated that they'd be happy to set up machines in Tokyo, so you were going to be able to vote worldwide, and Dick Nunes, when he was recruiting universities for this thing, mentioned that by the time this is done at the end of the decade, we anticipate a billion people will have taken part in this. It'll be the wow. largest public sampling of opinion that's ever been done. And again, remember, mm-hmm. Eisner was doing this because he wanted Disney to become this force in news. You know, to the effect of, according to the polling at Disney, you know, the Electronic Forum at Walt Disney World, you know, this is what people think about fuel prices or food prices or, or that sort of thing. Months of prep going into this, Len. Millions of dollars spent reaching out to these 2,500 universities and tabulating results and building the machines. And it all goes out the window because Disney realized, in fact, again, the double back to the notion of this has got to be dynamic because history is dynamic. Right. We have to give people the option of writing in names. And in 1990, among the names that got written in, were Andy Warhol and Donald Trump. Just the notion of, well, if you know, this is reflecting the arts or it's reflecting business, these are two prominent sure. people in those worlds. But what ends up happening is that there are Epcot cast members who have to work in this space and who have to direct these machines are open, please step over here, and this is how you operate them. And if you know you select from this list or if you want to add. And what eventually happens over time is Epcot members got bored. They had a particularly goofy friend who worked at the park and they began typing in his name. And then they began convincing other cast members to type in his name. And suddenly this cast member's name ends up in the top 10. Yeah. So you don't have to get a majority of the votes. You have to get a plurality of the votes. That's it. Exactly. And yeah, okay. All right. Again, this is dynamic. And in this last article I've found, and this is the last time anybody ever talks about Epcot Person of the Century. Uh, and again, this is winter of 1991. So it's December 91, January of 1992. There have been some new candidates added to the list. Uh, we have Neil Armstrong. We have George Bush. We have Bill Cosby. But we also have Michael Jackson and Ronald Reagan and and the Wright brothers. I'm, I mean, I love that the Wright brothers are in there. But anyway, by this point, the cast member at Walt Disney World is regularly turning up in the top 10. So managers at Epcot go to the Imaginators who are behind this, and it's like, look, we need to get this kid's name out of here. He's skewing the results. And they're like, we can't do that. We built this system with integrity. And if we go in and change any results, that voids everything that we've done here. Oh, really? Yeah. These people are, they're typing in the name. They are legit, in the eyes of this computer system, they are legitimately voting for this individual. And in the end, in the end he rose up to the top five. And at, at this point, Michael Eisner is so furious because, again, this was going to launch Disney in brand new directions and legitimize Epcot and, and that sort of thing. It's honestly not a coincidence, Len, that when Comedicore East and West shut down on January 31st, 1994, to make way for interventions, it's honestly not a coincidence that person of the century 
the entire electronic forum, the person of the century, just got wiped off the map and nobody ever talked about it again. Quietly goes away. Yeah. And I've always wondered about if there was any retribution for that poor Casimir. Because remember, he didn't type in his own name. It was his friends who were being goofy yeah. who typed it in. And the fact that millions of dollars and an entire initiative at the Walt Disney Company got derailed by, hey, let's write in Bob's name, you know, and it just, there's got to be an Epcot employee out there who took part in this. There's got to be somebody who knows this person's name, and I'd love to have that chunk of the story. But in the end, it's December 31st, 1999, and, you know, here's CNN and USA Today announced jointly, oh, by the way, we've done our own survey about the most notable people oh. for the 20th century. And sure enough, Mother Teresa topped the list. She was followed closely by Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Albert Einstein, and Helen Keller. But, you know, you know, somewhere Michael Eisner was drinking heavily, you know, probably champagne, of course, you know, but, but, yeah. you know, that New Year's Eve about that. That was my idea. That was my idea. So, <sighs> but, but anyway, seriously, if there's an Epcot cast member out there who worked at Person of the Century, and in fact, I, I think, weren't you and I talking about, they were so invested in this project that I think it turned up on eBay, there was a certificate for a celebrity to the effect of they created this to forward to the celebrity of, by the way, at this point, you have received this many votes in Disney's Epcot person of the century poll. And that was going to help keep it out in the public forum that, you know, celebrities would, hey, I got a thousand votes in this thing. But they were invested. They were, you know, this was going to be huge. And it all got derailed because, hey, let's do something goofy. That stinks. Do, do we know who is leading the poll? <sighs> when it would shut down? Yeah. They did do one last update for that December quarterly. But they were very careful about these are the leading candidates. They didn't list any vote totals at that point. To be honest, I don't know if you even went to the person of the century place at Epcot, whether they'd give you the actual numbers. They just, you know, the computer tabulated that and would adjust people who were voted on their positions accordingly. So. Ah, that stinks. Yeah. So the, uh, it looks like the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has a copy of the certificate. Oh. It had to be, uh, it had to be trademarked. Yeah. No, it's fascinating story. A, a, yeah, a, a, a wonderful what might have been, but. You know, what's the old cliche? You want to make God laugh? Make a plan. Exactly. That's fantastic. Uh -huh. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including never before heard ideas that Disney came up with for the Spaceship Earth Pavilion back in the 1970s. On next week's show, the history of Disney's Vero Beach Resort, part of their Disney Vacation Club, program. And that, Jim, that's the one DVC I've never been to. Wow. Okay. So there's a towel missing in your collection is what you're saying, right? <laughs> Allegedly. <Yeah. laughs> All right. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lenittrainplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be playing Frank Zappa's Peaches and Regalia and Kamasi Washington's The Epic at the CGI Rochester International Jazz Festival, June 18th to the 26th. 2021 at the East End Cultural District in beautiful downtown Rochester, New York. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.